We'll be reflecting this afternoon on Lord's Day 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's found on page 526 and 27 of the little uh, uh, Songs of Praise, uh, Book of Praise, um, Volume 2. If you'd like to follow along, or I'll just read this for us. The question we're asking first in uh, question 29 is this. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior? Our answer, because He saves us from all our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Question 30, do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints, in themselves or anywhere else, also believe in the only Savior, Jesus? We answer, no. Though they boast of Him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior, Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept this Savior must find in Him all that is necessary for their salvation. Church of God, elect and glorious in Christ, one of the things that pastors do quite often, and elders as well, is we do baby visits. Baby visits, if you don't know what that is, boys and girls, it's when pastors or elders, they go visit this couple, uh, usually maybe a, a young couple that have, uh, have their first baby uh, quite often. And sometimes we do it um, their second and their third and their fourth and their fifth as well too, but uh, quite often it's the practice in Reformed churches, you go on a baby visit, and pastors often go, and uh, elders sometimes as well. And one of the questions that I ask, because you go to, to, to talk with them, converse with them a little bit, talk about uh, parenthood and so on, and the biblical perspective and so on, and make a little conversation, uh, um, encourage them a little bit, pray with them. And one of the questions that I often ask these young couples is, uh, why did you name your baby such and such? And you get a variety of answers, like, well, he was named John because his dad's middle name is John, and so we wanted him to carry dad's, or his dad's middle name. Some um, try to find a name from the Bible, and so they'll say, well, he's named after Sarah, or Rachel, or Nathan, or Levi, or Asher. Um, some will say, well, we just liked the name, so they named their baby Denise, or Harry, or Beyonce in some cases. Some, they, they just search for a unique name. And so they will name their baby after uh, this, uh, they will name this baby this unique name that they searched out and they found. In biblical times, however, names were much more specific and specifically given. And we have to see why that is significant in the case of the name of Jesus, God's Son. In the Apostles' Creed, we sang earlier, I believe in Jesus. And, the, uh, and we have to ask from time to time, and that, that's the blessing that the catechism affords us, is we have to ask questions like this. Why is this specific name important? Couldn't the Bible merely have said God sent the Savior of the world into the world or, or, or something of that nature? Why the specific name given to Jesus? What are the implications of confessing this particular name? for us and for the church of all ages. And Lord's Day 11 helps us to answer these questions. And may the Lord remind us again this afternoon, congregation, why, as we sing in that wonderful hymn, why the name of Jesus is sweet in a believer's ear. Our theme as we look at Lord's Day 11 this afternoon is this, the necessity of confessing the name of Jesus Savior. The necessity of confessing the name of Jesus 
Savior. We'll see two points. In the first place, we'll see that that name of Jesus speaks of His mission. And in the second place, it speaks of His perfection. But as we consider the necessity of confessing the name of Jesus, Savior, we see in the first place that His name speaks, first of all, of His mission. I want to read question and answer 39, 29 once again with you. This is our Christian confession. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, Savior, our answer? Because He saves us from all our sins, and because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Now, answer 29, as you may have been taught or as you have come to the conclusion or you may have realized, answer 29 is made up of two very powerful verses in the Bible, Matthew 1.21 and Acts 4, verse 12. And Matthew 1.21, of course, records the words of the angel of the Lord to the earthly father of, of Jesus, Joseph, and the angel says to Joseph that Mary would give, uh, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Mary's going to give birth to a son, and you are to give his name Jesus. And boys and girls, you remember the reason why the angel said you are to give his name Jesus? Can you finish the rest of the verse in your mind? Because he will save his people from their sins. You see that attachment, that connection between the name and his mission. So that's why we're speaking about the, uh, the mission, the name of Jesus, speaking of his mission in this first point. And so Jesus here is given a very specific name, a name that characterized and would characterize his mission and his life and what he came to do. And being God's Savior, God doesn't leave this up to Mary and Joseph, to the parents to name his son. He himself names his Savior. Listen as well to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 21. Luke 2, verse 21, we read this, and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And Luke emphasizes that this was the name that Jesus was given, the name that was given even before he was conceived in the womb. This was the name by which God would identify the Savior that He had sent into, his, into the world, a name which in itself contained a description of what He came to do. What did He come to do? To save His people from their sins. And later on, after His ascension into heaven, recognizing and believing what Jesus had done, the apostles also proclaimed this, and this is, uh, I'm reading from Acts chapter 4, verse 12. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we, we hear the apostles saying, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Luke emphasizes that uh, in the book of Acts here that this was the name that the apostles uh, preached Jesus by. And here again in Acts 4, verse 12, we find his name being connected to his mission. Again, what is his mission? To save. Now, names in biblical times, and you might know this as well, were not just means of identification. And so, uh, it's no surprise, really, that God named specifically His Son, because names had uh, a great significance in that day. People didn't just name their children a name that they liked or whatever. Quite often, the name of a person in biblical times told something of their character, for instance. And so, for instance, you'll read in the book of Ruth of a man named Mahlon. Mahlon was the son of Elimelech, 
uh, the husband of Naomi, you might remember. And the word mahlon in the Hebrew means weak or sick. And so this tells us that this tells us something about Mahlon at the time of his birth. He wasn't a healthy infant when he was born. Think of the name of the priest, Eli's grandson, Ichabod. The glory has departed. He was named, he was so named because of the religious state of Israel and God's relationship to them at that time. The glory of God had departed from his people. Moses was so named because he was taken out or drawn from the water. God's relationship to Israel was contained in the name he gave to Hosea's son, Lo-Ami, which means not my people. Again, speaking of the negative relationship that God had with his people at that time. Or the circumstances of one's birth might be described in his name. And so Rachel named her son Ben-Oni, which his father later turned, uh, changed to Benjamin, Benjamin, son of my right hand. But Ben-Oni uh, uh, means son of my trouble. And, and Rachel named her son that as she died giving birth to him. Names would reflect sometimes the hopes of parents. And so Noah is from the Hebrew word meaning rest. And his father Lamech named him in the hope that he would bring them rest and comfort since the Lord had cursed the ground. And so names were given specifically in biblical times. And so not surprisingly, God names his son very specifically. You are to give his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. His name spoke and speaks of his mission. And this was a mission that could be traced all the way through the Old Testament to the very beginning, all the way, in fact, to God's promise to Adam and Eve after the fall that He would send one into the world who would crush the head of the serpent. And all through history, the Lord God was preparing for the coming of Jesus. And so in Psalm 130, verse 8, we hear, for instance, the hope of Israel for the future. We hear them confess, He Himself will, that is God Himself, will redeem Israel from all their sins. Or listen to a very familiar verse that we hear every year on, on Palm Sunday, uh, Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Israel, uh, we could point to many, many verses in the Old Testament, but they looked forward to the coming of their God to save them. In Isaiah 43, verse 3, He reminds them, I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One, your Savior. And these Old Testament verses sets the context for what the angel said to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He is the one that the Old Testament uh, prophets spoke about. He is the one that Israel was waiting for. Or think of what the shepherds heard out in their fields that, that, that night. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. And if the shepherds had not had the Old Testament Scriptures, they, it would not have made any sense to them that a Savior had been born to them in Bethlehem. The naming of Jesus was God's way of announcing that the promised time of salvation that Israel had waited for had come. 
This was the Savior of the world. Salvation was now to be found in no one else, nowhere else, but in the name of Jesus. This name, Jesus, of course, implies then that all other saviors, all other ways of salvation are excluded. God has named very specifically the Savior of His people. And that's why we run into problems with the people of this world, isn't it? That exclusive claim. You know, the world would love us if we would just join hands with people of every religion, every philosophy, every belief, and sing Kumbaya, and say, we all believe in God, and you have your way, and I have mine, and it's all good. We all love each other. People would love us if we did that. But the moment we say, only Jesus saves, only in the name Jesus is their salvation, is their hope of reconciliation with God, people put their hands up and they say, you Christians are bigoted, you're old-fashioned, you're intolerant, you're unloving. Why? Because the spirit of this age is do what works for you, right? Uh, no one has the right to judge or correct anyone else. No, Satan has played, a, a, we have to say, a masterful card in our day. He's got a lot of people to believe that there is no absolute truth. There is no one truth. Truth can have many forms, many interpretations. And it's wrong and intolerant to promote one way over another, to say your way is better than my way. That's just intolerant and intolerable. Satan have people believing today that there are many paths up the mountain. You just choose the one that works for you and you're good. But congregation, what many will learn, and this is why we need to be speaking the gospel and living the gospel before the eyes and ears of, of everyone God puts in our path. What many will learn, and sadly they will learn this too late, is that it's actually not many paths up the mountain. It's many roads leading down to hell. Salvation is to be found in no one else. Only in the name of Jesus, to quote the words of John 14, verse 6, do we find the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. We hear in Hebrews 7, verse 25, that Jesus alone is able to save completely those who come to God through Him. And so, dear people of God, may the Lord give us once again this afternoon eyes to see that only in the name of Jesus is there salvation. He was named specifically to announce His mission, that is, to save us from our sins. But as we confess the necessity of confessing the name of Jesus' Savior, we also see in the second place that that confession speaks of His perfection. Let's once again read question and answer 30. The question is this, do those who seek their salvation or well-being in saints in themselves or anywhere else also believe in the only Savior Jesus? We answer no. Though they boast of Him in words, they in fact deny the only Savior Jesus. For one of two things must be true. Either Jesus is not a complete Savior, or those who by true faith accept the Savior must find in Him all that is necessary for their salvation. So, what are we to make of someone who says they believe in Jesus? And I guess this is what the catechism is, is coming at here. 
What are we to make of someone who says they believe in Jesus, but their lives and their attitude show that they actually lean very heavily on their good works, on their own efforts, on their own practices, on their own, maybe even their own traditions? What are we to make of someone who says they believe in Jesus, but you can tell by the way they talk, by the way they behave, that they actually lean on these things more? Well, the Catechism reminds us that this is actually a denial of Jesus. In, in their heart of hearts, a person, in the heart of hearts of a person like this, Jesus is just not enough. He only gets us part of the way. It's like we're in this relay race and we grab the baton from Jesus and we say, well, we're, we'll take it from here and we'll take it uh, and we run the rest of the way, which is, of course, not the way of Christian salvation. Now, of course, the original context in which the catechism was written was the 16th century Reformation. After many years of darkness, light came to the church under God's blessing, and God's Word was placed once again into the hands of the common people and godly men. God raised up godly men to glean from the Holy Scriptures a proper understanding of what had been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And eyes began under the preaching of the Word and as literature be began to be uh, disseminated all through the land, eyes began to be opened to the false teachings propagated for centuries. Anti-Christian teachings and practices were, were, began to be exposed for the lies that they were. And this catechism question addresses those who clung to these false teachings and traditions, who taught and practiced them blindly, and it asks, do they really believe in Jesus, or did they really believe in Jesus? And the answer simply is no. But, you know, congregations, sadly, this was not the last time the church would drift into dependence on good works and idolatry. If you think of the culture in which we live today, even the Christian culture, what do we say about those today who are deaf? And maybe we might even go so far as to say they choose to remain deaf to the heresies and blasphemies being taught and spoken of and propagated in their churches, in their denominations, and they refuse to do anything about it. They choose rather to stay, and their excuse is, this is my church. You know, I was born here, I was baptized, my kids were baptized, I was married here, my kids were married here, so I don't care where the church goes as far as heresy, I just don't care. This is my church. What do we say of such people? What of those who dabble in, in the mysticism, which is making a big comeback today, by the way, the mysticism of things like prayer shawls and anointing oils, and, and they actually deny the need for the church, for, wor for gathering, for formal worship. They deny the, the need for elders. They deny even the need for the Bible because they say, well, I have the Holy Spirit. I don't need any of these things. It's me and Jesus. What of those who are constantly craving the spiritual high in worship? Are they not seeking to add to the perfect work of Jesus Christ? Do they not, do they truly see Jesus as sufficient? And of course, this comes back to the question, the original question we must all ask, is there a clear understanding of man's sinful state? Can someone sa say who says that, 
you know, I believe in Jesus, but I also have to do all of these things to be right with God. Can such a person truly sing that much-loved hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved, what is it, a wretch like me? Or has that word, wretch, become too offensive in our times? Because people today would rather say, well, I'm not a wretch. I'm a good person. A wretch is, is characterized by misery, a contemptible person. A wretch is someone to be pitied. That's a beggar. I'm no wretch. Some churches will not even use the word sin anymore or speak of its consequences. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, an attempt was made it was actually made by the liberal branch of the PCUS, it's the Presbyterian Church of America. And the attempt by this liberal branch was to change the words of that much-loved hymn in Christ alone. And here's what they wanted. Here's what the push was for. There's that line in there in Christ alone, which I think is the most powerful line in the whole song. But on that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Okay? They wanted, they said, that's too harsh. We've got to change that. So they wanted to change it to this. But on that cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. So they wanted to change wrath to love. Now, they failed. I'm happy to say they failed to get the author's approval to make that change. But that's a classic modern-day example of a denial of the need for and the perfection of the work of Jesus. Because people don't see themselves as sinful wretches anymore under the wrath of God in need of such a Savior who is perfect in every way. And beloved, unless we see ourselves, this is where it begins, unless we see ourselves for who we really are, all of us, we will never, ever really and truly cast ourselves upon the mercy of God, confessing with the publican, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Unless we see we, ourselves for who we really are, as the Bible portrays us. We all have to come to the understanding that only the blood of Jesus saves us completely. There is nothing in us that can gain us any favor, any merit with God. Jesus alone has merited us salvation by His perfect obedience and sacrifice. He alone was sent to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, that we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified, not by our own efforts, in the name of the Lord Jesus. In our scripture reading, we heard the confession of the apostle Paul. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Note, to save not try to save, not attempt to save, not to do his best to save. He came to save. He did it. There's nothing left undone. The work is finished. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And if Paul were alive today, he would sing that hymn gladly with us. Because Paul calls himself the chief or the worst or the foremost of sinners. And, and people might hear that today and they, say, well, they would say, well, why would Paul call himself such a degrading name and, and speak of him in such terms? Or maybe this is just a case of false humility here. He's not really that bad. He's just pretending to be bad just to show people how humble he is. Well, no. Paul meant this. He meant it very strongly. He believed it. Paul took an honest look at his life 
and he saw himself as one who was in drastic need of God's mercy. He says of himself in verse 13 of our passage that he was formerly a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul was a man who understood how great was God's grace in his life. He was a former blasphemer. And boys and girls, what does that mean? A blasphemer is one who speaks against God in a very negative way, in a very derogatory way. And Paul was one of these people, and he also forced others to do it as well. We hear this confession from the lips of the Apostle Paul in Acts 26, verse 9 to 12, or 9 to 11. Acts 26, verses 9 to 11. These are the words of the Apostle Paul uh, speaking of how he was before his conversion. He said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And now, Paul stood on the other side of the fence, as it were. And he was able to look back on his life, who he was, what he had done, the kinds of thoughts that he had uh, had in his mind. And he was now able to appreciate the depth of his and man's depravity and the greatness of his and man's need to the point where he calls himself here the chief of sinners. He saw himself as a wretch who had opposed the work of the precious Savior until he himself was shown mercy. And so Paul, having been shown mercy, began to fight tirelessly against adding to the work of Christ. We heard in our scripture reading in verse 3, his charge to Timothy to command certain men not to teach false doctrines. And time and time again, he battled against the false teachers who taught, and this is what was happening in the days of the early church. These false teachers were infiltrating, coming in, and they were teaching that, yes, it's fine that you believe in Jesus, but more needs to be done. And this was happening in all the churches. You need to keep the law of Moses. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep special days. You need to refrain from certain foods and certain drinks and so on. Fasts and all of these things. And Paul was writing constantly to oppose these teachings and encouraging the elders of the church not to let these things continue. See, Paul, coming, having come to understand the gospel, the greatness of his need, the depth of his depravity, and the greatness of God's mercy, having come to understand these things, Paul now didn't shy away from teaching the sufficiency, the absolute sufficiency of Jesus. He wasn't one to soften the gospel. Think of the way he speaks of the, uh, to the Galatians. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Right? Paul would speak like that because he wasn't afraid of offending people. He wasn't interested in sending people to hell with a smile and a handshake. He declares in our passage in verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul addresses our greatest need here. 
We are sinners. What's a sinner, boys and girls? A sinner is one who breaks the law of God, who does ungodly things, who is disobedient and immoral, who lies. Look at verses 9 and 10. Paul lists off some of those things there for us. And that's us. We are sinners. We are in need of salvation. We are in need of forgiveness. We are in need of reconciliation with God. This is not something that we can make happen on our own. And Paul here lays that out, and then he gives the answer to that need. He says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to accomplish this, what we could not do for ourselves. Our fallen nature, which has resulted in unrighteousness, had actually alienated, separated us from a holy God. We are lost if we are not saved. The lions are about to tear us apart and crush our bones. God's bow is drawn and His arrow is sharp. We are sunk up to our necks in the miry clay. We are fuel to the flames. We are plummeting from the heights to the rocks below. The fury of God's wrath is scorching. The flames already licks at our clothes. We are sinking to the depths. We are bound in chains. We are weighed down by our guilt. We are in need of saving. We have no hope in and of ourselves except that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And congregation, it is good to be reminded of this again this afternoon because let's face it and let's be honest, as much as we disagree with them, there's a little Arminianism in every one of us. There's something in us, and it's part of our sinful nature, that we want to, contrib we want to contribute somehow in some tiny way to our salvation. We look at our sins and our shortcomings and our failings, and we begin to doubt that God could actually love us because maybe because if, if, if we were, were really a child of God and if God really loved us, then we would be doing better. And we think, well, maybe I just need to do more. That's that little Arminianism in all of us. And certainly we all need to do more. We can all do better. But it's in those times when we need to come back to confessions like this and the Bible which teaches. And the, the, the catechism sums it up beautifully here for us. In those times when we begin to doubt and wonder if we need to do more, we need to come back to this confession. Those who in true faith accept this Savior have all they need for their salvation. The name Jesus speaks of perfection, the perfection of His work. A true believer always returns to the fact that through Jesus, our Father's love never ceases. Our names are never deleted from the book of life. He will never hit the stop button, button or even the pause button on our salvation. And in those times or those moments when we think, well, maybe I can, maybe Jesus did it, but I, maybe I need to keep myself in my salvation. We have to go back to the confession that obedience really is the fruit of salvation, not the cause of it. Obedience is the fruit of salvation not the cause of it. We come back to this glorious confession. We who in true faith accept the Savior have all we need for our salvation in Him. We rest in the words of our Lord in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It's in our hands now as believers. 
And beloved, that's where the true comfort lies, doesn't it? You know, we live in a, a difficult time for churches, for conservative churches like ours, today that, 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 that simply want to preach the unadulterated gospel. For churches like ours that just want to worship God reverently, because you have all this competition going on all around us. You know, this church has this, that church has that. The music there is so peppy. The people there are so excited. And you know, that's all fine and good. But here's the thing we have to remember. And this is where we get, have to get our feet back on the ground and plant them firmly. Here's the thing. You can have all the excitement you want. But if Jesus isn't being preached, if sinners and sin aren't being addressed, then true Christianity is not being broadcast. And God's people are not being comforted. Well, what does this call us to? Well, it calls us today to be, and this is something that should be ongoing in our daily prayers, to pray for reformation in Christ's church, to pray for a reawakening in our time, in our day, for revival, for the end of, and the destruction of liberalism, for the restoration in many churches to biblical preaching, and it calls us as well, personally, to ask ourselves again today, who is Jesus? Why do I say I believe in Jesus? And why is it so important that I believe in Jesus? Why was He named that specifically? And do I find all I need to be right with God in Him? And why is it still necessary after all these centuries to confess every Lord's Day in the Apostles' Creed that I believe in Jesus. And beloved, may our answer be that it is because we believe that Jesus is the Savior of sinners. May this be our confident confession that in this name, Jesus, I have been ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. In this name, I find an incomparable, all-sufficient Savior. Amen.